0: She was taken from her home and placed in a place called Tanfran in the old abandoned racetrack in outside of San Francisco, which was what the government called an assembly center, which was governed by the military and with uh, very few rights for the people there. She agreed to join an art school as an instructor, an art school led by the famous artist Chura Obata, but she also started to document the surroundings. In fact, she was... So tired of people being uh, coming in and interrupting her that she put a quarantine sign on her door. And if people asked what she had, she'd say hoof and mouth disease, because of course they were all in horse stables.
1: Welcome to Medium History, a collaboration between Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences at Chapman University and the curious minds at Passed Forward. This series is an exploration of history through multimodal art and expression, allowing us to uncover hidden complexities often overlooked by conventional textbooks. We observe visual material culture, that is the art, artifacts, music, storytelling, fashion, and other expressions of a particular time period and consider its profound impact on our understanding of the past, going beyond mere dates and names to reveal the multifaceted layers of the human experience. It's about immersing ourselves in the emotions, opinions, and cultural subtleties that mold our world. In this series, we engage with authors, artists, and educators to cast a fresh perspective on the history of Japanese-American incarceration through the lens of creativity and expression, specifically the lens of the comic book and the graphic novel. I'm your host, John Barrett Ingalls. And in this episode, we connect with Greg Robinson, professor of history at the University of Quebec in Montreal, and author of the book, Mine Okubo, Following Her Own Road, about the life of the artist who documented her experience in the Japanese incarceration camps through her drawings and her paintings. Thank you for listening. I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself and how you found a passion for history.
0: I think I've had a passion for history for a long time. And even as a little kid, I watched the musical film 1776 and was fascinated with the American Revolution and got my parents to take me to Philadelphia so I could see uh, Benjamin Franklin's grave and Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell and all that. and. As I grew up, I uh, explored historical sites, read up on history books. I mean, it wasn't uh, necessarily a given that I would go into history as a profession, but I always had at least an interest in it. And then when I went to France for my junior year of college uh, to perfect my French, I discovered that I had a knack for French history. Uh, That is, I had taken American history courses, and I thought, well, maybe I just have a knack for it because I've been studying it all this time and I've been interested in it since childhood. But I actually had a way to connect the French history that I was learning that I knew nothing about at the beginning with the American history things that I had already learned, the historical tendencies, the division of history into economics and politics and all the rest. So I discovered that I actually... Had a knack for it that went past just what what it interested me as a kid.
1: Now, in, in your in your work, you pay a lot of attention to the marginalized history of people of color here in America. What led to to that exploration?
0: Well, I started out as an African Americanist. Uh, I was fascinated by. The civil rights movement and the struggle for equality my parents had met because they were both interested in civil rights and had bonded over that long ago i think that seeing the american society that i grew up in at the late 20th century and all the movements gay and lesbian movement the environmental movement uh the movement of uh disabled americans These were ways to give me an insight into the workings of society. uh, But always, always, there was a discussion of who was the majority versus the minority. And I came to question, you know, what is what we would later call intersectionality? What is the connection between uh, discrimination against people based on their ethnicity or based on their uh, b- level of ability? What is the connections between uh, people of color in particular?
1: Now, when working in in Quebec, what is that experience of teaching American history, especially this traumatic history, in another con- country, like removed from it?
0: Well, I mean, the the border is only 40 miles away. Sure. Uh, And in many ways, Quebec is, and Canada are American spaces. They're North American spaces. And that actually makes it particularly interesting to teach students up here because they are Americans. They are North Americans. They have a familiarity with the culture and the history of the United States, or at least um, the popular culture. And yet, particularly in French Canada, they have a distance both because of the border but also because of the linguistic difference. And in fact, people in Quebec have access to uh, history writing, both in English and in French, which I think gives them an interesting advantage in trying to understand the United States and its history. They have a critical distance that uh, Americans or English, even English Canadians don't have, but they have a Familiarity and a closeness that, say, Europeans or Asians don't have.
1: Yeah, one of the things in my research, and this is where you know I, I want to try not to get off the rails because I could we could have an entire conversation about this. But uh, looking at the parallels between Canada and the United States, I read an article you wrote about the incarceration of Japanese in Canada. And as I'm doing these podcasts, I'm constantly learning new things. And there's always this feeling of like disappointment that I didn't know that, that I didn't know that that on a pretty large scale there was this parallel in, in Canada. And again, we could have an entire conversation on this, but if you could, for our listeners who are also like me, uninformed, give a little bit of that that history of of how Canada followed the US after Executive Order 9066.
0: Well, in in many ways, it preceded the United States. That is, Canada had its own long history of discrimination against Japanese immigrants and their children, uh, particularly in British Columbia, where 90% of them lived before World War II. Uh, They were excluded from the vote, uh, even if they were born citizens. Uh, When uh, World War II came in 1939 against Germany and later Italy, Uh, Japanese Canadians were excluded from the draft because the the white leaders in British Columbia feared that if they were drafted, they would have an irresistible argument for having voting rights. And they were all, again, whatever their birth or citizenship, were forced to register as enemy aliens. And then after Pearl Harbor, Canada's West Coast experienced the same kind of anti-Japanese Uh, movements that you saw in California and Oregon and Washington state, where agricultural organizers and white nativists all called for mass removal of ethnic Japanese from the region. The difference is that in Canada, the army and the navy and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police all said that there was no great danger of invasion and no danger from the Japanese Canadians who had no weapons or or ways to uh, express themselves, the greatest danger was to Japanese Canadians in in case of rioting against them. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, uh, Prime Minister Mackenzie King was sensitive to the pressure from uh, West Coast political leaders, notably his minister Ian Mackenzie, and so he at first envisioned a half-measure. In January 1942, several weeks before Executive Order 9066, he uh, issued an order taking away all adult men, which Mm -hmm. eventually became to be seen as all men of whatever citizenship from a 100-mile radius uh, inside from the Canadian West Coast and sent them to road labor camps. He thought that this would be a good way to calm tensions and uh, make a more realistic policy. Instead, all it did was convince everybody that there was a danger and indeed embolden West Coasters to say, well, if there's a danger from the men, there could be a danger from the women and the children. So we should get rid of everybody. And so it was that once Executive Order 9066 was issued, Mackenzie King issued his own order, removing all Japanese Canadians from protected zone uh, again about 100 miles in from the west coast. The difference is that while the Japanese-Americans were sent in family groups to government-built camps, the Canadians divided men and women and wanted to send men to road labor camps and women and children to either abandon mining towns or to sugar beet farms in the west. Eventually a group of uh, Japanese-Canadian citizens protested and at the on the pain of getting arrested as enemy alien uh, prisoners of war they were able to persuade the Canadian government to send people in family groups at least to those interior confinement sites again but except for building shacks or one one camp American style in the Canadian west coast The Canadian government wouldn't pay for food and clothing and schools and all the other things that the American government paid for. And so instead, they confiscated people's belongings and sold them off to make them pay for their own internment. And eventually gave people the choice of either moving themselves east or of being, if they stayed where they were and refused to move, being sent to Japan once the war was over. So while the Japanese Canadians and their allies were able to remain they were impoverished and uh, scattered by the war and it took them a long time to recover
1: yeah it's interesting I mean, as you were saying like we are so close and it's just a border that divides us from Canada yet you know here in the states we we, we, we don't learn any of this in our public education. I mean, we we barely learn anything about our own experience and, and the uh, incarceration of Japanese here. But uh, yeah, I had never heard that before. So thank you so much for sharing.
0: Yes, when after I published my first book by order of the president, and I moved, my, I myself moved to Montreal and started learning more about the Japanese Canadians. It struck me that nobody had ever written a full history that was on a North American level. And so, my second book, A Tragedy of Democracy, is devoted to exploring both the United States and Canada, and indeed Mexico, and the uh, removal of Japanese from Latin America.
1: Right. Well, now we're going to do our 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 transition to another book that you worked on, uh, Miné Okubo, uh, following her own road. Miné Okubo's book, Citizen One Three Six Six Zero, came out in nineteen forty six as Some of the incarceration camps were were still open here in the States. Her book is considered the first documentation of life inside the camps. And the book is filled with sketches of of camp life paired with her commentary. And it's really one of the first graphic novels, as in picture books that are not directed specifically to children. I'd love for you to talk a a little bit about her, her, her upbringing because art, is in Minet's blood. She came from a family of artists.
0: Yes. Her mother had a brother who was a Japanese who had studied in France and who died young. In later years, she had uh, books that had a few canvases of his, photo images of them. And then her own mother came to the United States because she was part of a demonstration team that uh, went to demonstrate Japanese handicrafts at the St. Louis-Louisiana Purchase Exhibition in 1904, although her mother must have been in advanced pregnancy by the time she got to St. Louis, so I don't know whether she actually performed in the uh, Louisiana Purchase Exhibition. In the event, at the end of 1904, Mine's eldest brother, Benji Okubo, who was an artist, uh, was born... uh, Obviously, he was not an artist from birth, but he, uh, in his youth, worked with the Art Students League in Los Angeles, and with other painters such as Hideo Date and Tyrus Wong, and did murals and did illustrations and such, and was quite an inspiration for Mine. And then Mine's eldest sister had shows in Riverside at the Mission Inn. So Mine, when she went to become an artist, certainly had a background that was comfortable to her and encouraging, and she wasn't alone. However, she was the first one that really got an education. She went to what was then Riverside Junior College, now uh, Riverside Community College, and then to University of California, Berkeley.
1: And her career really started to to blossom and and start to take off, like her her profession as an artist uh, in the late '30s, right before the war.
0: That's right. She became integrated into artistic circles in San Francisco. She participated in shows at the what's now SFMOMA, the the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco and was hired by the Federal uh, Artist Pro- Arts Project to do murals. In fact, she worked on a mural with Diego Rivera, the famous Mexican muralist. Wow. She she claimed that she was down at the bottom of the ladder holding the the ladder for Rivera as he as he painted things but uh And she would joke that she was the fourth daughter of his fifth wife. (laughs) But but she got a a very interesting training in doing murals. And then she started doing murals herself. And then she was given a, a fellowship to spend two years in Europe studying the great masters. But World War II started in Europe while she was on her fellowship. And so she came back early. Uh, she used to love to tell this story that when she was in Europe, she would wear uh, a big parka that she had gotten because, you know, compared to California, Europe was quite cold in winter, particularly the Northern Europe. And they would see this tiny woman with an Asian face and an enormous parka, and they would say, Where are you from? And she'd say, I'm an Eskimo. <laughs> <laughs> What's
1: well, interesting, too, I mean, her life could have gone in a completely different direction because she, barely was able to make it back before uh, uh, transport stopped.
0: That's right. Uh, She got on the last boat back from Europe, she said, uh, when war was declared. And then she went back home, and then her mother, uh, who she'd been very close to, died. And so she stayed around to help her father. Her father was quite lonely, and so he went and got involved in some Japanese fraternal or church groups. I forget which it was. And because of that uh, involvement with Japanese groups, her father was arrested after Pearl Harbor Mm. as a a dangerous enemy alien. But Mine herself, instead of being somewhere uh, in Europe or in South America, was on the West Coast when Pearl Harbor came. And she was still there in the spring of 1942 working on a mural for the army base at Treasure Island, and she received special permission to be exempted from the curfew that covered Japanese Americans so that she could finish this mural, go stay there in the evenings and then get home after dark.
1: But unlike other, other families, I mean, I guess they were all older at this point, but her and, and her family all went to separate camps correct?
0: Well, she w- she had one brother that she went to uh, the camp with, first to Tanfran and then to Topaz, but it's certainly true that her father was, well, interned by the Justice Department. Her brother, Benji, I know, went to Heart Mountain, but you're quite right. She was uh, just about 30 by the time that she left for camp. So yeah, she was certainly an adult.
1: So now you're you're in this d- detention center, this this incarceration camp, but she wasn't going to let her artistic voice be silenced um I mean, she pretty quickly got to work as an artist inside the the incarceration camp
0: right again we she was taken from her home and placed in a place called Tanfran in the old abandoned racetrack in outside of San Francisco which was what the government called an assembly center which was governed by the military and with uh, very few rights for the people there. She agreed to join an art school as an instructor, an art school led by the famous artist Chura Obata. But she also started uh, to document the surroundings. In fact, she was so tired of people being uh, coming in and interrupting her that she put a quarantine sign on her door. And if people asked what she had, she'd say, hoof and mouth disease, because of course, they were all in horse stables.
1: (laughs) That's funny. Uh, And then when uh, when she was transferred to Topaz, uh, she started working on Trek. Will you tell us a little bit about what what Trek was and what her work was for that?
0: Yes. In each of the 10 war relocation authority camps, that is, the the quasi-permanent camps that the government set up for long-term confinement of Japanese Americans that were in the interior of the United States, in the West, and in Arkansas. Hers was in Utah. It was called Topaz. And in each of the camps, there was a, a camp newspaper, which was censored but gave the inmates a chance to express themselves. And in Topaz, the inmates, many of whom were from the San Francisco area, and thus more uh, literate, more experienced than others, set up their own literary and artistic magazine, which they called Trek, the idea being that they had trekked into the desert and they were now going to use it as a springboard to trek to the rest of the country. Mine volunteered to be the artistic director, so she did the cover designs, she did many of the interior illustrations. She uh, directed the artistic stuff.
1: So you talked about this this censorship of these uh, periodicals from the camp. This whole time, uh, Minet was sketching and painting these uh, her experiences and and the conditions in camp, and these images were were being distributed. I'd love for you to talk about how they were distributed, how how they the Chronicle was able to obtain them. And then also how the War Relocation Authority could allow this.
0: So from the beginning, as you say, Mine was doing sketches of her life and surroundings in camp. There are different stories that she gave. Uh, One is that she created them for friends outside of camp, particularly friends in Europe who were worried about her, or that because no cameras were allowed in camp, that she needed to document, almost like a documentary photographer, what the conditions were like, or that she was interested in her own artistic advancement. Some of the sketches she made into full-fledged drawings and, indeed, paintings. Uh, others remained as as sketches. In particular, she took two sketches and made them into full-fledged drawings and sent them off to an exhibition at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And one of them won a prize. It was a, a drawing. I believe it's called On Guard it was of two concentration camp guards outside of the camp sort of warming themselves in the in the cold weather the the pathos of that uh, that she actually had pity for her jailers hmm. or just the extraordinary fluency and excellence of the drawing led to it winning a prize at the exhibition and then being reproduced in the San Francisco Chronicle and that put Minne Okubo into the sights of the Chronicle the Chronicle then invited her to submit some of her sketches of camp. And so she submitted some sketches, uh, then added some comments on them. She didn't intend at first for the sketches to the comments to be used, hmm. but the San Francisco Chronicle found them irresistible and they printed them alongside the sketches and interpolated a speech by Dylan Meyer, who was the head of the WRA. So it was published in the middle of 1943 under the title, I believe, On Evacuations, uh, Hopes and Memories. That, again, brought her to the attention of the War Relocation Authority. At that point, the WRA had finished incarcerating Japanese Americans and now was looking for a way to get rid of them. That is, confinement was expensive, it was embarrassing, it was probably unconstitutional. Uh, And the WRA leaders like Dylan Meyer, who had never thought that mass removal was necessary, wanted desperately to get Japanese Americans out of the camps so that they wouldn't form another dependent population or another ghettoized society. And so, in collaboration with the army, they developed a joint board and a loyalty questionnaire which would allow people to uh, swear loyalty to the United States, be judged on the basis of it, and be able to get parole to get out of camp. So to make people outside of the West Coast, because again, they weren't sending people back to the West Coast. The army had excluded people from the West Coast. But in order to say that these Japanese Americans who are too dangerous for the West Coast are not too dangerous for your community, they were looking for all sorts of ways to show how great Americans, Japanese Americans, were. So Mini Okubo was ready to collaborate in that mission. She thought it was of great importance for Japanese Americans to get out of the camps. And so if that meant showing Japanese Americans as good Americans, uh, she would do that.
1: But aren't some of these images an embarrassment for the WRA of of what the life inside the camp was like? Or or some of those more dehumanizing images. Did that come later after her release?
0: It came later after her release, but all of it was in the service. of Again, she was not just writing propaganda for the government, she was trying to mm-hmm. give a sense of the experience. But nonetheless, in her text, uh, rather than in the images, and in her approach that she took with publicity, she talked about how Japanese Americans had managed to surmount these difficulties and build communities and be productive.
1: We'll talk a little bit about her release and and the funding, this the success of these images and how it led to funding her release or helping her uh, relocate
0: after the article in the San Francisco Chronicle and Evacuees' Hopes and Memories was published somehow probably with the aid of the WRA, Mini Akubo was recruited by Fortune magazine, which was part of the Time Life you know Empire, to help illustrate a special issue that they were doing on Japan. Within that issue, again, it's not clear, uh, and different stories have been told about whether Mini herself suggested doing an article about Japanese-Americans, or whether uh, it was the people at Fortune themselves who decided to do such an article. But whatever it was, she was recruited to do drawings for their article called *Isenisikibe* Nisikibe on Japanese Americans in the Camps. In order to make it possible for her to work, Fortune magazine sponsored her to leave camp. And so she, in the end of January 1944, She went from Topaz all the way to New York and she found a little studio with the help of Fortune Magazine, which she uh, lived in essentially for the rest of her life, actually. She illustrated that issue and her drawings were so powerful that they and the other drawings from the magazine, from that issue, which were produced by uh, Taro Yashima and Yasuo Kuniyashi, who were two artists from Japan who were living in New York, they were all included in a show that the WRA and its allies uh, sent around. Once she was in New York, she produced more drawings and a set of her camp paintings and sketches for a show that was put together by uh, a pro-immigrant group called the Common Council for American Unity, who ran the magazine Common Ground, and it was premiered in New York in April of 1945. The WRA sent photographers to The premiere to show what a great show she was how how great it was that japanese americans could resettle and be like other americans and then the show after playing in new york played all over the country so Mm. in in the process mine became known as an artist of japanese american confinement her sketches were produced in the new york times in a review of a book by carrie mcwilliams in Uh, other locations. She even was featured in uh, one of the Glamour magazines. I think it was Cosmopolitan, as as an example of young women artists and professionals in New York. The head of Common Ground, the editor M. Margaret Anderson, took Okubo under her wing and tried to further her career, not only by sponsoring this show that, as I mentioned, opened in April 1945, but by finding A publisher to publish a book-length collection of those camp sketches. And so that's what Minet worked on during 1945. I don't know exactly when it was finished, but it must have been uh, fairly soon after the end of the war, because it was, as you say, published in the middle of 1946, uh, right after the closing of the last camp, and when there were still Japanese Americans confined at the internment government internment camps at Crystal City. So
1: when citizen 13660 came out in 1946, what was the the response from the public to these images and and probably some of the only images that most of the public has seen right of life in the camp.
0: There were there were a few images in Ansel Adams uh the famous nature photographer did a study of Manzanar called Born Free and Equal, which he produced as a show at the Museum of Modern Art in 1944 and then published as a small kind of pamphlet. So there were a few images disseminating in the public, but certainly nothing with the intimacy and uh, clarity of Mini Okubo's sketches. Citizen 13660 uh, was released at a time when Japanese Americans were still suspect. Uh, Minnie herself said, everything Japanese was like rat poison. So Mm. it didn't do very well. I mean, certainly Japanese Americans themselves bought it and allies of Japanese Americans trumpeted. uh, Harold Ickes, who had been the Secretary of the Interior and had supervision of the War Relocation Authority, did a laudatory column about it. And there were uh, wonderful reviews in different newspapers But it didn't sell very well among the public, and it soon faded from view.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the second life that the book had, and its resurgence, and and also how it's connected to uh, Minet's contribution to the redress movement.
0: So, as I said, in the years after 1946, the book was largely forgotten. Minet herself went on to a second career as an artist in New York, First, doing murals, uh, like for a steamship company, and participating in more artistic competitions, but finally making a niche for herself as an illustrator of books and magazines, and which is her main way that she supported herself during the 1950s and into the 60s. During the 1970s, as Japanese-Americans started opening up about the camp experience, and Americans started paying attention for various reasons to the history of the camps, which is something that had been rather put into silence during the 1950s and into the 1960s. Mine's own work was rediscovered. So, for example, Mills College in Oakland produced a show of her art, including her camp art. There started to be shows of art from the camps that she would contribute to. She met younger artists at the Basement Workshop in New York. Citizen 13660 was itself rediscovered. First, the historian Roger Daniels sponsored a publication by AMS Press on a, on a very small scale. And then a number of redress activists, notably Aiko Herzig-Yoshinaga, proposed to University of Washington Press that they do a new edition of Citizen 13660. Uh, There's a backstory there that they had refused to do uh, an edition of John Okada's No-No Boy, and a group of Asian-American writers put it out themselves, and it had a big success, and Washington asked whether they could actually take it, and they said, (laughs) if you want No-No Boy, you have to start, you know, be more serious about working on Asian-American texts, and they persuaded University of Washington Press, thus to do a new edition of Citizen One Three Six Six Zero, which was published in 1983. And incidentally, there was at the around the same time the first Japanese edition. Much much later, in the beginning of the 2000s, there would be a French edition. It was the almost the first French language books about book about the camps, other than a novel by Daniel Steele. Uh, wow. But anyway. Um, Mine then used that book as part of her contribution to the Japanese-American redress movement. For example, in the early 1980s, when the Commission for Wartime Relocation and Interment of Civilians, the government-nominated historical commission that had been uh, created to write a historical research and study of the events of World War II and Japanese-Americans held hearings in New York she went to testify before the committee and she introduced her book as evidence and similarly when she went to washington dc for the supreme court hearings on japanese americans she did sketches uh, that she that she published in a japanese american newspaper the new edition of citizen 13660 won an american book award and got much more attention and in fact is has been in print ever since it started in 1983.
1: we'd like to thank greg robinson for his time his knowledge and his passion medium history is produced by chapman university's wilkinson college of arts humanities and social sciences and passed forward For more socially conscious content, visit pastforward.org or follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast.